It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. There is much wailing and gnashing of teeth this morning after a USA drone strike wiped out Iran's top general as he arrived at Baghdad Airport in Iraq. The Pentagon has confirmed that Major General Qasim Soleimani was killed at the direction, and that's in quotes, of President Donald Trump, along with Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, the deputy commander of the Iranian-backed militias known as the Popular Mobilization Forces. Already, Iran is warning of a crushing revenge, their words on America, which could result in an attack on US bases in the region or a strike on Saudi Arabia, Dubai or even Israel. General Soleimani was the head of the elite Quds force and was accused of orchestrating attacks on coalition bases in Iraq recently as well as this week's attacks on the US embassy in Baghdad. It's obviously going to be a tense few days. President Donald Trump has tweeted out simply a huge American flag on his Twitter. Uh, It looks like a bit of an episode of Homeland to me but obviously it could be quite serious. We'll be tracking it today uh, and we'll be tracking it for the whole of the rest of the next week as well. Uh, to see what the Iranians are going to do. Uh, they're bound to do something, it seems to me. 0344 499 1000. Back in the UK, we're preparing for all weathers. It might be warm now, but there's a cold snap coming, apparently, and you've got more chance of winning the lottery than getting a police officer around to press charges for you if you've been the victim of shoplifting. We'll be talking to a private security firm that'll do it for you instead. 0344 499 1000. Later on, we'll be asking, what has gone wrong with the sex offenders list? Apparently, paedophiles and rapists who want to have their names removed from the list are being approved by the hundreds just because they tell the authorities do you know what I'm actually fine now I'm not a sex offender anymore and I'm no longer a risk to the public fantastic isn't it and we'll be finding out all about how we might be flying around in electric planes within the next couple of years you're listening to me Mike Graham right here on the fastest great radio station in the entire world it is of course Talk Radio the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, you will all know very, very well if you've been a victim, particularly over the Christmas and New Year period of a burglary, if you've had your car stolen, if you've had anything nicked from you uh, from a pickpocketing situation, perhaps on public transport, and if you're a shop owner uh, who has been the victim of shoplifting, you will know very, very well that an awful lot uh, of the people who get involved in that kind of behaviour do not get caught. If they do get caught, they tend to be given short shrift and 
uh, not really uh, taken anywhere spe specifically serious. They get probably let off uh, and they very rarely become uh, prosecuted by the police. It now turns out uh, that things have got so bad in some parts of this country that private security firms are now taking on that particular role. Not only uh, are they actually arresting people, but they are now actually launching private prosecutions against shoplifters and pickpockets because the police are failing in their duty to actually do that for them instead. So, um, I was saying just to, uh, a few moments ago to James Max, I was in North London the other day uh, over the New Year period. I was driving up Hampstead Heath Street, which is a famous old street that I used to spend an awful lot of time in. There was a great big police station there uh, on the corner of Keats Road. Um, the building's still there, but I don't believe it didn't look like it was still a police station, didn't look like it was still open, there was no blue light outside. What I did see, though, was a private security car, which, which looked very much like a police car, parked very, very close to where the police station used to be. And I can only assume that more and more people are now employing these private security companies to actually keep them safe and to make sure that nothing terrible happens. Let's talk to Peter Blexley now, former Metropolitan Police officer, of course, a man that knows a thing or two about fighting crime. Peter, a very good uh, morning to you. I'm going to say Happy New Year, even though it's Friday, January the 3rd. Uh, OK, well, I've closed down the whole Happy New Year <laughs> conversation bit, right. but, but thank you anyway. All right, well, I won't mention it again. I'll, I'll, I'll take that as, as, a, as a, cu a cutting off of, the, of that particular phrase. Um, let's talk a bit about this, Peter, because obviously it seems to be a trend that in many parts of the country now, particularly those parts of the country where quite a lot of wealthy people live, private security firms are getting hired more and more. Yes, they are. And, of course, this, this whole story throws up so many questions... I would happily have an hour of your show to discuss them because okay. it's really, really complex here. I mean, first of all, should we have two-tier policing, courtesy of these private security companies? Mm. In other words, one for the wealthy who can afford it, and as for the rest of us, well, take your chances. Take your chances, yeah. And, and, and hope that you're not going to become a victim of crime. That's a very big question in itself. But can you blame the two officers who have set up this particular company in London, which is called My Local Bobby, right. and that's in no way an advert because I'm not connected to them. Mm. But, you know, they've seen a gap in the market because of a decade of austerity and huge cuts to police numbers, which I know this government is attempting to reverse, but will fall well short. Um, there's a gap in the market. Police simply have prioritised other matters. So when it comes to pickpocketing, shoplifting, attempted burglary, crimes like that, upsteps this company into the breach to fill a gap because the police have abrogated themselves in their responsibility and they're quite simply not interested. No, of course. And of course, I mean, one of the, one of the first questions I would have for, for these guys, and I don't know whether you even know who they are, but they're former Scotland Yard uh, detectives, I believe. I mean, how do they vet, for example, the people that are wearing the uniform? Because the, the people they're employing are wearing uniforms. They are private bobbies, effectively. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's still a crime to impersonate a police officer. I'm not suggesting that's what they're doing. But you might look at them and think, that's a police officer. Well, their uniforms are fairly distinct uh, and different from what you might uh, expect a police officer to wear. But it is, of course, a uniformed presence, isn't right. it? And, of course, we come across so many people these days working in uniform, whether that's when we're travelling on transport or whether, indeed, we are going shopping mm. and we see security guards and all of that. And I think part of our psyche thinks there's someone in uniform, that's someone of authority that we can hopefully trust, we'll go to them in a moment of need. Sure. Which builds on your question, and I'm 
very keen to find this out from this company. How do they recruit, vet, and train these people? Right. Mirroring what you said. You know, where are these people? Who are these people? And also, and, yeah, and if you are, I mean, it's all, you know, for you and I, Peter, we might be a bit better educated about what police officers look like, what they wear, you know, what they're required to wear, but not everybody is. I mean, people will look at uh, what these people are wearing and think, well, they're obviously official, they're obviously wearing a uniform, but what sort of powers do they have? I mean, what if one of these guys comes up to you in a street and tells you to move your car or tells you to, you know, to do something, and you go, well, I, why do I have to do that? And that whole recognition thing might apply hugely to tourists, yeah. for example. Right. And they are, and this company are operating in parts of the West End, for example, in London, where you would expect there to be huge numbers of tourists. They see one of these the, these guys or girls in uniform, and immediately they they hone in on them. Yeah. Now, you know, I've been a very keen follower of this company for for many many months. Mm. Um, and, I, and I'm across the uh, one of the owners on social media, and I see how vocal he is about talking about the, when the company has done well. Right. He's, he's very swift to get onto social media because it's a form of advertising for him, obviously. Yes. I mean, we have asked them to come on, uh, and they have not so far responded. So we did okay. try and get them on because I'd like to put some of these questions to him. Yeah, absolutely. And one, one burning question for me in particular is... How, how, how are they compliant? In other words, if a member of the public has a complaint against one of these yes. officers, who is going to investigate that and who is going to adjudicate upon any such allegations? Because as sure as eggs is eggs, somebody is at some point going to complain about the actions of yeah. one of their bobbies. No, of course. I mean, according to the information I've got, they're regulated by the Security Industry Authority, which yeah. apparently issues licences to private security workers. But, for example, another case I was going to bring up to you, I spend quite a bit of time at Canary Wolf. I used to work at Canary Wolf. They've got their own sort of private security detail there. They have the power, apparently, if they so wish, because it's a private estate, to ban people from ever setting foot on Canary Wharf, right? Now, a lot of people don't know that. And if you are, say, I don't know, getting involved in some ruckus or other, just because you're out drinking with your mates, because a lot of people go to Canary Wharf just for a drink on a Friday night, you can actually be arrested by these people and banned and kicked off the site, which is quite an unusual power to have, isn't it? It, it would be, and I, that would be an arrangement between the company and the landlord, yeah. treat it as their own private land, and perhaps want to impose their own sort of regulations uh, that would apply. But you can but see again, how something like that could get out of hand, you know what I mean? Yeah, but again, you see now, building upon what you've said, and, and I will say, I have seen them, uh, courtesy of being a keen follower of, of one of the owners of this company, I've seen some of the work they do, and it actually does have a place in the absence of police. Can't be bothered to deal with it. I feel it does have a place, but... Another big question I would like to put to them, building on what you were just saying about, you know, rowdiness, for example, perhaps, because at some point, sadly, some, one of these bobbies is going to get killed. Yeah, well, that's the problem. Um, or, or, you know, they're going to take on something which is perhaps out of their area and which they're not really trained to deal with. Well, it, it could be, it could easily be something that they're trained to deal with, like a pickpocket, for example. I dealt with some incredibly violent pickpockets in my time, especially those that operated on the London Underground, for example. They were notorious. You know, you are only ever in when, when you are doing frontline policing, and let's face it, this is what these men and women are doing. They are only ever 
you know, a bladed instrument away from an absolute catastrophe. Mm. How is the company set up to deal with a bereaved family, you know, who have lost someone at work? Where is, what is their obligations, for example? Yeah. Um, what, what are their insurances? And all of this, it's really complex. There's so, so many questions that, uh, that really should be asked and I would like to, I would very much like to hear the answers. Yeah, I mean, supposedly they've already undertaken 400 private prosecutions with a 100% success rate. I don't know whether they are um, in some way allied to the CPS, because presumably if they're pressing charges or bringing private prosecutions, is that outside of normal criminal procedure? No, no, no. They, they, in fact, they've been advertising recently for uh, detectives, either recently retired or thinking of a career move, to come out of the police right. and or, or, or join their prosecutions team because they are carrying out their own private prosecutions. Another one of their companies has been very successful in operating against fake and counterfeit goods. Okay. And that's where their success rate in terms of their convictions comes from because uh, they've done an awful lot of work there working with people who are the big brands and don't like having their stuff counterfeited, quite obviously. Right. So it's another... Uh, it's another one of their companies that are under the same umbrella, um, which is which is now um, my local Bobby. Right. Um, so, yeah, so where are they getting their money from? Then are they charging sort of individual businesses? Are they charging individual residents? Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. They're operating both for businesses. For example, in the West End, they go to business owners and say, "If you pay us X amount per week, we will patrol this street endlessly, day and night." They are reducing crime. They're always out there on social media posting how their teams are reducing crime, but they are also moving into residential areas. Mm. So if you live in, a, in an area where people can afford to spend a few quid every week, every month, you will get your own designated Bobby or Bobbies patrolling your street 24-7. Right. And so, that's a very, very attractive proposition to people. And, and while the police may presumably be not particularly happy about it, I mean, it must be reducing their workload to some extent, so they, so they probably privately quite like it, don't they? Well, I think it's probably, you know, fulfilling a role that the police gave up on many, many moons ago, right. to be perfectly, perfectly frank with you. Well, right. Um, and also, is it one of those, you know, when you see these movies where I was watching Internal Affairs the other night on the BBC, one of my favourite films uh, with Richard Gere, um, and one of the things that the cops do in America is they, they sort of moonlight as security guards at a local shopping centre. So is this likely to actually attract some members of the police force into doing a bit of moonlighting and making a bit of money on the side? I don't know what their pay terms and conditions are and I don't know what their pension provision is and right. all that kind of stuff for their staff. But certainly in terms of a retired detective, for example, who might be in receipt of his or her pension, then going to work on a private prosecutions team to quite pleasantly supplement your, uh, your pension income might be a very attractive mm. position. Yeah, absolutely right. But as you say, I suppose it's only a matter of time before something maybe goes a bit wrong. Um, and a bad a bad situation is is made worse by the by the presence of these people. Yeah, that that that, that is my concern, and and I, and I speak as a sort of a bloke who worked at the coalface of police in all my career. Mm. You know where we where we hold one another's safety and security very very dearly, and we look after each other and we cover each other's backs. That would be probably my biggest concern. I'd like to say at this company, you know, what is going to happen when sadly tragically, but almost inevitably, somebody that is stopped by one of your bobbies to be questioned by one of your bobbies pulls a knife and there's a dead My Local Bobby lying yeah. on the ground. 
Well, exactly, because, I mean, looking at one of the other stories today that's, that's doing the rounds, which is not related to the one we've just been talking about, a judge down in Exeter Crown Court, David Evans, uh, dismayed when he discovered that he was unable to sentence teenage muggers, three boys aged 17, who were all caught on CCTV robbing two men of their wallets and their mobile phones, because apparently uh, he'd been tipped off that they might be potential victims of modern slavery. So they couldn't actually be sentenced until some kind of um, report had been produced about whether they were in fact, you know, part of some gang or other. Yeah, and that's becoming, uh, that is increasingly going to become a more prevalent defence for young people. Uh, I think particularly around this county lines, as it's called, yeah. dealing, where people are actually going to say, actually, I've been enslaved to do this, and uh, I am, in fact, a victim. And that, of course, would bring me on to another hour of your show, all about the need for the <laughs> legalisation and regulation of the illegal drugs industry. Well, of but course. That's another story. Yes, you mentioned that to me before. It is, But it is a mad sort of situation. I mean, I don't know how... Um, we're going to get to grips with it. We've got a new Prime Minister who's got a very large majority in the House of Commons. As you said, he has said that he's going to be increasing by 20,000 the police force. Presumably that's going to take a little bit of time. Um, it's also not going to replace more than the number of people that have already been taken out of the police force. So we're kind of going back to square one, as it were. I mean, do you hope or can you see a way that the streets of this country are going to be made safer in the next 12 months? In the next 12 months? Well... Yeah, I mean, the, these additional police officers that are being recruited will go some small way to helping. That's become a little bit safer, perhaps. But, of course, so many experienced officers have been lost. And it's really when you're a rookie and you come out of your training and you go on the streets, it's that's when you start learning stuff. Um, and sadly, so much experience has been lost uh, because of a largely dissatisfied, overworked and underpaid police service that it might take a generation or so to get us back to where we once were. But mm. that will only be if there is consistent funding put towards this problem. Because let's face it, and I don't want to be so full of doom and gloom this early in the year, but it's a, it's a fact. The entire criminal justice system has been stripped bare, neglected, and is frankly on its knees. Yeah, I mean, it's not fit for purpose. I mean, we talk a lot about the new decade that uh, we're about to enter, the roaring 20s, it's being called, right? But if you go back to the beginning of the last decade, say 2010, 2011, you know, we have definitely become a more dangerous country to, to live in, have we not? Oh, far, far. We are all a little bit less safe than we used to be a decade ago. And why is that? because of the swinging cuts to the numbers of police officers, because of the swinging budget cuts to the CPS, so they are prosecuting far, far fewer people than they ever did. The court system has been stripped of bear, virtually, so courts aren't sitting, so people are not going through the system, they're not getting sentenced, so there's no kind of deterrent from that end of the criminal justice system. Then you go to the prisons that have had their budgets absolutely butchered. So people, consequently, are not being rehabilitated and they are returning back onto the streets as bad a crooks as they were when they went in, in many occasions. Yeah, absolutely right. Peter, listen, thanks as ever for talking to us. Peter Blexley, their former Metropolitan Police Officer, a man uh, who knows an awful lot about fighting crime, a man who says uh, that we are now, obviously, um, and on our knees when it comes to fighting crime. It's, it comes as no surprise to me uh, that your local Bobby and other similar kind of private organisations are going to set themselves up to basically police your streets, because if the police aren't policing your streets, and nobody 
activity is, then nobody is going to worry about the kind of crimes that they're going to be committing because they're not likely to be caught. And if they are caught, they're not likely to be prosecuted. And this particular case in Exeter is an interesting one because, as Peter says, what we now see are young men, 16, 17-year-olds, taken into crime, but basically telling any judge who they go in front of, if they've been found guilty of mugging or uh, rape or anything like that, they say, oh, yeah, well, we were enslaved, weren't we? We were, we were modern slaves, and therefore we can't be sentenced, we can't be punished, we have to instead be treated as victims. And that's where it's all going wrong. As ever, I want to hear the voices of the sane people uh, who listen to this radio station and listen to this particular show as well, because you are the people that put Boris Johnson in charge, you are the people that voted him massively uh, into government with a new mandate to make the streets safer, to hire more police officers, I want to know from you whether you've come across any of these private uh, organisations, these private security companies. Do they operate in your area? If they do, I need to hear your stories. If you've had any dealings with the police over the holiday period or just over the last few months, I'd like to hear from you as well because those are the kinds of stories that give us a much better insight into what is really going on. What we do on this radio station is we listen to the ordinary people who have ordinary experiences to tell us and that's what we want to hear. 0344 499 is the number. We've got loads more to do. We'll keep be updated what's going on uh, in Iran. Dominic Cummings is looking for some more people to go work in Downing Street, by the way. So if you're a weirdo, uh, some kind of policy a geek or wonk of any kind, he wants you to go and work for him. Uh, I think it's a great opportunity for people to get involved in the wheels of government. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, speaking of Dominic Raab, he announced six weeks ago that infants abandoned by their ISIS fighter parents would be brought back to the United Kingdom, But, of course, we've talked an awful lot on this show about ISIS bride Shemima Begum, uh, who wanted to return to Britain with her newborn baby. Uh, she has lost three children already uh, while she's been out uh, in various refugee camps in uh, uh, northern Syria, in parts of Iraq as well. What we do know about all of these people is that they went out to fight for a bloodthirsty, ghastly death cult. Uh, they now want to come home on the basis that they say they might have made a mistake. Well, I'm not sure uh, where you stand on that, uh, but I don't think we should be bringing these people back. We've spoken to Dr. Rakib Hassan about this many times from the Henry Jackson Society. His view is, is that they should be tried in some kind of uh, criminal court like The Hague uh, for war crimes because they were part of this ghastly organisation. Let's talk to Tom Sugenhat, uh, who is also, of course, MP for Tunbridge and Mauling as well. Tom, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks very much for uh, for joining us. This is one of those stories that kind of continues to come back at us, doesn't it? Because no matter how much government policy can be made, there is there is a human rights side to it. Well, there is, and, and this is something that we're going to keep coming back to, sadly, over many years, because I don't believe, and I, I suspect you don't believe, that this is the last time that some stupid young people are going to go over and join some idiotic mm. death cult and, and, and try and uh, bring, bring death to a part of the world, this time the Middle East, next time who knows where. You know. And so we're going to have to get ourselves up to date, and that's why I keep calling for a new treason act. Because actually, we just don't have the right, uh, we don't have legislation in place to really act on this. And, and I think we really need to update ourselves and make sure that we can. Yeah. And what is the situation regarding a lot of these people? Because we know, I think, from, from talking to other experts in the field, that there was something like four to 500 who had returned already to the UK. The others who have not uh, were part of a sort of a, a load of people who were in refugee camps before that kind of outbreak of, of hostilities between the, 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 the Turks and, and the, the Syrians in, in southern Turkey. And we understand that some of them may have got away from those refugee camps, and they, I don't know where they might be. So this is the problem, Mike. The definition of who, who is what and where is really difficult. Because some people are, you know, 
17, 18-year-olds decide to go and join ISIS, make it to Turkey, get cold feet and come back. Mm. Right. Have they engaged in terrorism? Well, not really. They've been incredibly stupid, but they've come back before they've done anything. Other people have gone all the way. They've you know, died in Syria or Iraq or wherever it is. And other people have been uh, captured afterwards and have then fled and have gone to third, fourth, fifth countries on from where they were. So there's, it, it's not really a very easy, it's not easy to give you a very clear answer because it's very difficult to say exactly how many people were where at what time. Um, and that's something that the British government, I hope, is, uh, is looking into so that we can make sure that we know uh, who is actually guilty, who has been caught up because they went over with their parents when they were 11 or 12. Uh, you know, we don't hold 11 or 12 year old children responsible in the UK. and We shouldn't do if they're effectively kidnapped by their parents and taken some murderous cult. Mm. Uh, we shouldn't hold them responsible for that either. Uh, so there's a whole series of there's, there's a range of options here, if you see what I mean. And there's a range of a range of situations. We've got to look at each one carefully. Yeah. And I suppose one of the issues is how safe would it actually be to go and rescue some of these people and rescue the children? Because certainly the US has said uh, that they would mm. like to see these these people being brought to justice back here in their home country. And we're not the only country that has this problem because I think Shemima Begum's husband was in fact a Dutch national and there was some suggestion that she could maybe go back to uh, to Holland with him. She doesn't want to do that. But, you know, it's, it's complex, isn't it? It is, and you're absolutely right. Other countries have similar problems. The French, the Germans, the Dutch also have similar problems. So, look, some of these, some of these uh, refugee camps are a mile or two over the Turkish border and it wouldn't be too difficult to go and get them. And others are deep inside... Uh, Syria, which is, you know, let's not forget, still under the government of a, a very hostile uh, dictatorship, Bashar al-Assad, and so it's it's a different, you know, it's a different thing. So, it, depending on depending on where people are, also makes a huge difference. But I, I, while I think that, you know, we should be uh, prosecuting those who come back, I, I see no need to go and, uh, you know, actively go seek to rescue them by putting people's lives at risk. No, quite. And is there a sort of a relatively, shall we say, um, collective view of this situation in Cabinet? I mean, Priti Patel is very much against bringing them back. Is, is everybody kind of on the same page, I suppose, is my question? I, I don't know, I'm afraid. I, I, I know that uh, Priti Patel has uh, spoken about it, uh, and I know that Dominic Raab has spoken about bringing back the children, but I don't think, I may be wrong here, but I don't think he's spoken about the parents uh, or rather, you know, the, the, the adult jihadis. And uh, and here, I think it's something that, you know, we've got to face up to, you know, I wish we didn't have to bring them back. I mm. wish they, they could stay there. You know, all of that would be great. But the idea that we're going to set up some sort of tribunal in Iraq in the next year or two, it, it's just not real. It's not going to happen. And so how do we get these people off the battlefield so that they don't just start up again in another country or another country? You know what I mean? And I think, you know, Bluntly, at the moment, the best answer is to update our laws uh, and to bring them back here and to uh, lock them up. Yeah, because the worry we would have, I suppose, in general, is that you'd be bringing back people like the guy who blew up the Manchester Arena, you know, who still have some kind of hatred for the United Kingdom and the way of life that we have here. Uh, and despite what they might tell people, um, they will do people harm. Well, exactly, and we saw that in on the London Bridge. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, the, the incredibly brave response of... Um, uh, of that Polish uh, guy with the narwhal tusk. I mean, you know, if, if anything's a lethal weapon, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have expected that to be. But he absolutely heroically, um, you know, fought off uh, a terrorist. Yeah. And and you know, we've got we've got a real situation here where we've got to have laws that allow us not just to uh, detain people, uh, but actually to 
keep our people safe because this is you know i mean people keep telling me about human rights and 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 i'm you know quite rightly i'm hugely supportive of human rights the right to a family life the right to privacy and many other rights that we guarantee for our citizens but there is a you know the right to a family life includes me and you mike you you know we we have a right to a family life and not to be murdered by some terrorist right that that is also a right it's not just it's not the uh, it's not just those who are seeking to do harm who have rights it's uh, us ordinary citizens have rights too Absolutely right. And of course, many people will be asking and do ask me this question, you know, are we sure that the radicalisation that that took place, that that, that sort of encouraged these people stupidly to go abroad to join this death cult, are we confident that that's not happening anymore in this country? Uh, I know that the government's doing a lot on this. This is one of those things where the prevent agenda, which has been uh, lambasted by some, is actually doing some really, really important work. And I find it absolutely extraordinary when I when I hear some people from different communities condemning the de-radicalization works. Look, if if I was from a, a community vulnerable to radicalization, I would do everything in my power to make sure my children were kept away from uh, lunatics who were trying to do them harm by sending them off to die in places like Syria. Right. I mean, I, you know, I would do my absolute damnedest. And I have to say, most people uh, in the UK think exactly the same no matter which community they're from you know the 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 level of support we get uh from uh every community in the uk for the sort of counter you you know what i mean the 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 sort of the resistance to uh to to extremist preaching is very very strong there are a few loudmouths who annoyingly get more airtime than they really deserve who uh sadly seem to set a bit of the agenda but that's something we need to we need to correct we need to make sure that the ordinary voices of uh, British citizens, whether they're Christian or Jewish or Muslim or whatever, are the voices we hear, uh, because those are the voices that speak really strongly against Speaking to the Imam of the Armed Forces a number of years ago, the, one of the former Imams of the Armed Forces, and I pointed out to him how brave he was to be doing what he was doing, because of course when I go home to uh, Kent, you know, when I was in the army, when I go home to Kent, I know not only am I going to be safe, but you know, folk will buy me a beer in the pub. That's not true for him. There are plenty of people in his community who will see him in some way as a traitor. And he, his response actually really inspired me because his response was, yeah, but the thing is, it's not your kid who's going to be radicalized to go and die in some horrible place. It's yeah. mine. Right. And, and that's why he was doing it, because he knew the protections that this country offered uh, his family. He, and, he, and he knew exactly what he was fighting for. He was fighting for his own children. I mean, fighting metaphorically, of course, he's an imam, so he wasn't picking up a weapon. But you know what I mean? He was part of an organisation that was defending the values that made his kids safe and free. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's that's got to be part of whatever the conversation is. So where are we then, uh, would you say, Tom, in terms of actual movement on this? Because clearly it can't go on forever, the conversation about what to do. So is there a sort of time limit that you've set with, with, with yourselves? Well, look, I, I've I've been uh, pressing. I have to say, it's it's all because of the election. There's been, frankly, quite a lot of yeah. hiatus. But under the uh, last government, so it was pretty. But uh, under the last government, um, I was talking to them about a paper I wrote about. I'm going to get it wrong now. About 18 months ago, I think mm-hmm. it was for Policy Exchange uh, on treason, on updating the Treason Act, because you know. This isn't just a crime of violence. I mean, it is, of course, a crime of violence, but it's also a crime of betrayal. We know that we owe duties to each other. I mean, Mike, you, you and I both know that we uh, owe duties to, you know, 
people, whether they're taxi drivers, whether they're nurses, whether they're teachers, we get and we owe. You know, it's, it goes both ways in society. We get services, whether that's medical care or, you know, whatever it happens to be. And we owe duties, whether, you know, the principal duty is to be a responsible citizen and not try and kill each other, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, there are, it goes down from there, so it's paying your taxes and, and being, and, you know, being law-abiding as well. But at a very basic level, not trying to kill, kill fellow citizens. Um, now, that is a very basic level of, of betrayal that we've got to we've got to make sure is 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 recognized and, uh, and that's something that you know i don't think the treason act does recognize because it's mostly focused i mean understandably because it was written in the 1300s it's mostly focused on the betrayal of the person of the king mm. which is a bit different well yes and also there was a treason um, act which was enacted in order to make it um, punishable by death if you had committed treason against the king at that time i mean presumably you wouldn't want to have a death penalty attached no. to this no and and by the way you know some some cases of treason like some cases of assault you know the conviction itself would be it right mm. be convicted and you'd be a traitor and that's it and the sentence is a suspended sentence for a week or a month or a year whatever i mean you know and for others, it would be, no, this is a very egregious form of treason. You're not only convicted, but you've got an indeterminate sentence of whatever, you know, any, any number of years. Right, OK. And, and when, when you see something like what's happened overnight uh, in, Iraq, in Iraq, I should say, where the, the Americans have taken out this, uh, this, this general from the Iranian uh, yeah. army, a very uh, surgical strike and, a, and an incredibly important one, I think, um, does that make this situation worse, do you think? Well, uh, it asks a lot of questions, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be quite cautious about giving you okay. a clear answer now because it, it's too early to tell. Bluntly. Yes. No, I mean, I've seen Dominic Raab's statement, which is very sort of, I would say, cautious as well because yeah. he's not even really standing behind Donald Trump's action. He's just saying everybody needs to calm down. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, I mean, Qasem Soleimani is an extraordinary character in Iran. He's, you know, he's a member of the revolutionary aristocracy, uh, you know, I mean, he's a key, key member of the Iranian revolution. He, uh, you know, the revolutionary command structure today. He's, he runs a massive business empire of sort of, you know, uh, concrete factories uh -huh. and, 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 and all the rest of it through the Revolutionary Guard Corps. He runs three, you know, well, a separate army, navy and air force. He's effectively the commander of a state within a state, right? He's the elite, you know, he's the elite commander. He's also been expanding terrorist action around the world, including places like Argentina. Uh, he's, he's been incredibly important to the global jihadi movement that defines the Iranian revolutionary uh, ethos. And he's, you know, he's absolutely key part of that. But, and here's the big but, he's also a hugely popular character in many ways within the Iranian popular imagination. So in, in some ways, he combines a sort of, you know, Lord Mountbatten with a George Clooney. Mm. I mean, he, he, he's, he's quite, you know, it, it's very difficult to find a comparison for him today in the, in, in the UK or in the United States. You know, he's much more than, than just a revolutionary leader. Yeah. Um, and so his loss will be felt much more strongly, I guess, as well then. I, I strongly suspect so, yes. And, and the Iranian government will not be able to, you know, for their own sake, they won't be able to... Uh, they won't be able to pretend it hasn't happened. If you see what I mean, they'll have to respond in some way. But how they respond, I just—it's really far too early to tell. Yeah, and true. I th and I think the key for us is to make sure that we are braced and and, and that all British citizens are aware of the risks that um, they may face in the region, because of course the Iranians don't 
really um, notice the division between us and the United States. They, they, uh, they see us very much as part of the same. Sure. Tom, appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Tom Sugenhout there, Chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, also Conservative MP for Tunbridge and Morley, saying that they really do need, and I'm wanting, willing to, uh, to take your calls on this as well, uh, we really do need to get to grips with this returning jihadis conversation. Do we bring their children back? Do we bring them back? I've always been of the impression that we do not bring them back on the basis that, you know, we have enough problems trying to police the ones that are already here, and I don't think that the police have got the resources to police all of the ones that would be coming back who would be telling us, of course, that they're all fine now uh, and actually they don't pose a danger to society whatsoever, even though they gave up a life in this country uh, to go and join a death cult uh, where they liked uh, setting fire to people in cages, where they basically tortured people, uh, where they gave uh, comfort and succour uh, to the most ghastly individuals that ever walked this earth uh, under a flag of ISIS. I don't think they should be coming back. I don't mind having their kids, I suppose, but uh, I want to hear from you. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Dominic Cummings, just to make a little move over from, uh, from food to, uh, to politics, who is quite a weird-looking guy, dresses quite strangely, uh, clearly is a genius. I call him the evil genius. He's the man behind Boris Johnson winning a massive majority in Parliament. He's the guy that was basically pulling the strings of Brexit all the way through last year since Boris Johnson got into Downing Street. He's now actually come out uh, with a very interesting offer to people that he regards as weirdos, misfits, um, generally sort of geeky type people to come and work for him in Downing Street. Now, I happen to know a couple of people that have gone to work in Downing Street and they would be described as weirdos uh, and wacky and somehow misfits, but that's what politics is about. And we're going to talk to a man now who knows an awful lot about it, Colvier Ranger, former advisor to Boris Johnson uh, when he was in City Hall and was the Mayor of London. Colvier, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. How now, are you? I'm very well indeed. Now, I would never describe you as a weirdo. <laughs> I mean, you're a pretty normal guy, right? But with some pretty yeah. normal ideas. But, there, I mean, politics is full of weirdos, isn't it? Well, well to be honest, when, when I worked at City Hall, and when I first went to work with Boris, I was probably considered a bit weird, <laughs> uh, full of different ideas, uh, things like, uh, you know, bringing electric cars into London, um, putting shared space in. I brought in an architect called Ben Hamilton Bailey to talk to the mayor then to say how we shouldn't be putting um, more traffic lights and taking away guardrail and changing the way London looks. You need different views and people are going to break the system when you want to deliver change. And I think this is what Dominic's speaking to. And I'm really, actually, really excited that he's done this. I'm really pleased know. as well, because there were a lot of people who thought that once Brexit was kind of achieved, that Dominic Cummings might just disappear, because that was what he came in to do. You know, he'd masterminded the Leave campaign. He'd now masterminded uh, getting Brexit done. And I'm very glad that he looks like he's going to be hanging around. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think, look, when you want to change the system, when you want to make uh, real improvements... You need to do things differently. You know, the, the, what's the old adage? You know, doing things the same and expecting a different result. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the definition of insanity. You have to change the thinking. You have to change the people. Uh, and they bring in new ways of doing things. That's what Dominic's doing here. He's saying, you know, we want to be a, this government wants to be a changing government. Boris has got an agenda and we need people who will bring that change. And the, the other thing they're highlighting is that they can't do it just with a small band of merry men and women that they've got at the moment. They need to bring more people in, more energy and enthusiasm. But I think the fundamental thing that I really want to point out here is, as well as Dominic highlighting this, is that Boris has always been like this. When we went into City Hall 
you know, and Boris obviously has a background of peace, been to Eton, he's been to Oxford. But I've never seen Boris surround himself with people who are exactly the same as him. In fact, you know, people might say there aren't that many people who are the same as Boris. But what I mean is in terms of education and background, he's always had people with different viewpoints, different cultural backgrounds, different education coming in and bringing ideas to the table that can help deliver that kind of new ideas, new change that mm. we want to see. Well, you know what I noticed straight away when Boris did go into Downing Street with Dominic Cummings and they started to hire people like Chloe Wesley from the Taxpayers Alliance. They hired Ross Kempsell, our political editor, and brought him straight into Downing Street. Suddenly they were surrounding themselves with some very bright young things, as I used to, as I would call them. Um, and so immediately they kind of killed off the argument that many of the Remainers had, which was, oh, Brexiteers are all thick, they're all stupid, you know, they're all idiots. In fact, it was the complete opposite. And these people who had wanted Brexit to happen were much brighter than anyone on on the Remain side. Well, exactly, because also those people you're highlighting um, are, are thinking in the new way. They, this is the next generation. They're yeah. not burdened with history. They're not burdened with this is how it has always been. No, they're free from that thought of thinking, you know, that it's always got to be and therefore we must fit in a structure that has always existed. And to be honest, people like Dominic, there will be leaders like Dominic, who can give them encouragement, because that's the other thing you need. You want to bring in the bright young things, but, you know, the people like Dominic there will encourage these people and will also protect them, let's be honest, because you get a lot of um, what we call, you know, um, cell rejection or tissue rejection when you go into a big organisation. You can come in as a person who's going to bring change with new ideas, energy, be young, full of, you know, enthusiasm. Suddenly the system and the people around you and the bureaucracy encloses you and stops you doing what you've actually been brought in to do. And that's where people like Dominic will also help. They'll help fight off those things and allow people to bring in the change. And, and, and believe you me, I've seen it up front myself. I've been in the big bureaucracies. I've been in government departments. I've been in you know, places like Transport for London with tens of thousands of people, all telling you know, the mayor or me what you couldn't do and why you couldn't right. do it. But you've got to break that down. You've got to bulldoze your way through it. And you've got to give people energy and enthusiasm and confidence that they can do the new things. And it doesn't always have to be the same old story. Sure. Because what I do know as well from some of the people that I know that work in the civil service, they're all quaking in their boots because they're worried that, that actually somebody is going to run the line over what it is that they do and is going to discover that actually they're not very efficient, they're not terribly well kind of motivated and a lot of people in the civil service just sit around and sort of box tick all day and don't achieve anything. So, I mean, knowing what you know about Boris and the way he runs administrations, do you think he can actually radically change the way this country is run? He will. He will. He will. And uh, the reason he will is, is not just because Boris wants to see it happen. It's because he'll bring in those people. And, and I don't think people should, you know, in the civil service should be scared of this. Um, I think they should be, they should really embrace it. Yeah. Because I, every, I'll be honest with you, Mike, nearly every civil servant I've met wants to do a good job, wants to serve the people, wants to deliver good outcomes from government and they themselves get frustrated by their own bureaucracy it's kind of you know how, how they get tied themselves if it's in knots so when they'll see this freshness of approach what you do see is good civil servants actually get attracted to these people they want to support the new agendas they want to see things happening and i think we'll see a bit of that happening in in Weisswall as well Absolutely right. You're not tempted to go and uh, throw your hat into the ring. I mean, he's looking for, uh, amongst other things, policy experts, communications experts. I mean, I can see you <laughs> qualifying in all manner of ways here. 
No, I, no, I, I, I'm delighted to, to, to help and I will, you know, do whatever I can. I, I think what I genuinely want to say at the start, I think this is a fantastic opportunity. And I'm, te- I'm saying this to you and anyone who's listening on the radio. If you want to get involved, if you want to change this country, if you think you've got ideas and energy and enthusiasm, email Dominic. Look at his blog. It's on there. I've read his entire piece. It goes into a lot of detail of the kinds of people he's looking for. I'm sure there's tons of people out there who'd, who'd want to chip in and improve our country. This is your opportunity. Let's do it. I also love his sort of straightness as well. He's just being very, very matter-of-fact. He says, look, if I don't like you, uh, you won't last long. I'll kick you straight out as fast as you came in. And, I mean, you can't be more honest than that with people. Yeah, absolutely right. And he's also honest about, you know, how hard it's going to be. Yeah. Let's be honest, these jobs aren't easy. They're a privilege to do these jobs. You know, I was fortunate enough to work for Boris when he was mayor. Um, and there's a privilege and there's a responsibility that you carry when you get this opportunity. And that does mean working day and night. It does mean a bit of sacrifice in your personal life. You probably won't be able to manage your boyfriend, your girlfriend. It does put pressure on your relationships and your family and everything else. But that's, that's a sacrifice that, you know, then gives you the opportunity to improve things for millions of people. And yeah. really, you do get the opportunity to improve the lives of millions of people. So if you've got the time, if you've got the energy and the enthusiasm, absolutely do it. I, th- I think it's a great opportunity. Colville, thanks very much indeed. Colville Ranger there, uh, giving you uh, the, the wherewithal uh, and the, uh, the oomph, if necessary, to just, you know, put your hat into the ring. If you fancy going to work in Downing Street, you will never get a better opportunity than this. You will never, ever uh, be approached like this ever again. Dominic Cummings clearly is a fascinating character. He's a bloke uh, who knows exactly what he wants, he knows exactly how to get it, and he knows exactly how to get things done. And I think if you want to be part of this new brains trust of running this country, making it more efficient making it a better place for everybody to live. I think this is a fantastic thing uh, to get involved with. I'm a bit too old, a bit over the hill, and also I don't like working too hard now because I'm, you know, I've done all that. I'm not going to work 24 hours a day for Dominic Cummings. I will do my job on the radio, and I will do it with great uh, enthusiasm. But if you're younger, if you were, if I was in my 20s, I would jump at this chance. I would absolutely do it. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. As you would expect, here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, we talk about things that change the law all the time. We've just had a conversation there about wanting to change the law so to make it more difficult for people. We're now about to talk to a man uh, who has um, pretty much broken all convention over the course of the last couple of hours. Uh, His name is Jordi Casabijana. He's an ethical vegan. Uh, He's just been given the right to claim that he has a philosophical belief uh, which should be protected by law and which should be protected indeed by employment law as well. Jordi, a very good Good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming. And uh, listen, congratulations. You've, you've changed the law in this country, right? Now, I'm one of those people who doesn't uh, uh, eat vegetarian food, uh, although I do occasionally from time to time. I'm not a vegan, but I, I absolutely respect your right to be one. Um, this you. is a landmark ruling for you. What made you feel so strongly that you had to go to an employment tribunal about this? Well, to be honest, I didn't expect that my individual case would lead to this major change mm. because I simply was a vegan and I was fired. Right. And therefore I said, well, like anybody is fired, what are my rights? Can I complain? Can I change the situation? Yeah. Then when I was uh, consulting lawyers, is I realized that my belief, which I thought already was protected, by the way, it wasn't. That I needed, to, I happened to be the first person that would ask the question of whether it should be protected. And, right. and by, by chance, I, I, I was involved in the first case that now might have 
not just a uh, good influence in everybody that is vegan in the UK, but might inspire other vegans in other countries that they have similar situations, that they might decide perhaps we should do the same and go to court and try to protect our beliefs over there. So right. that's international repercussions. So you were sacked originally for gross misconduct because you told colleagues, I'm told, uh, that the pension fund for the League Against Cruel Sports uh, was investing in companies which were involved in animal testing. Is that right? Uh, is, is right, but I cannot talk of the details of that part of my case. The case is still ongoing okay. and it's still litigation going on. This was a pre-hearing of the actual full uh, case that will continue later in February. And that's where these questions will be discussed. Yes. So, uh, and therefore it will be inappropriate for me to comment. No, OK. But, uh, yes, Although it may well be that this particular development makes uh, your position much stronger, doesn't it? In my well, uh, indeed, you're right. In the sense that any case that you have... Uh, develop in different phases. Anytime you succeed in one phase, improve the chances to win in the end. Okay. But you never know. With, with, uh, it will be a different law, a different uh, employment tribunal, a different judge. But definitely makes obviously Mike is uh, strong in that regard that I was I, I was needed to uh, needed to prove this point uh, in order to continue with my case. That the point has been proven. Right. And ethical veganism presumably means that you can only work for organisations which do not invest in um, things which you would be against, for example. So uh, have you been able to find another job where, where, where that's possible? Well, I, I've been ethical vegan for 18 years and I've worked for many organisations in the past. At the moment, I still haven't found the, the right one. I'm still looking for it. I'm not sure I'm going to find it. It's, it's not a matter of uh, having the perfect organization. It's a matter of choosing the best possible option. So when, when you work with an any, when you choose anything as an ethical vegan. Sometimes you do have a vegan-friendly option, sometimes you don't, and you have to be pragmatic because the world is not always 100% favorable to veganism. And sometimes in an organization, is an issue of pension funds, they, they might already have a pension fund institute for you, or they might change it, or you can change yours. So there's always an option to do. Right. What we so you would, work, do, you would work for a company that had a pension fund that maybe you didn't necessarily agree with if you could, well, if, I, you, if you needed to. Well, it depends on of, of what the pension fund goes. I would not uh, go to a company that forced me to invest my contribution to vivisection, for instance, That's right. definitely, or, or pharmaceutical companies that do tests. Uh, but but uh, what I do now, if I, when I am uh, interviewing for jobs, is I do ask the questions about the pensions and everything else, and I will, that will inform my judgment to uh -huh. whether I should work with them or not. Uh, but, uh, the, but so the at the moment, you, are you working at the moment or no? I'm looking for another job so okay. at this moment. So I'm between jobs, I think, say. Okay. And I read a story about you a week or so ago when this was still firstly coming into the, into the media, and it said that you don't like to travel by bus. Is that right? That's not right. That's what some press has, uh, has made a uh, point, but they got it wrong. They, yeah. they misinterpreted my statement. What I, in my statement, what I say is, is uh, when I have to travel anywhere, I use also the knowledge about which options do I have that might minimize my impact, negative impact to animal life. Right. So if, for instance, if it's uh, uh, winter where there are not insects out there, I would take a bus. I don't have any problem there. But if it's a summer in a spring, there's a lot of insects out there and I have a choice, I'll, I'll take the tube. There are fewer insects there than, in, than, uh, than outside. Uh, okay. So I will, any decisions you make. So I do consider every time I take a public transport, whether which options do I have, and I choose the one that 
and minimizes the impact in animal life. Sure. And, and because you could, I mean, you could, you could, you could have an impact, I guess, on animal life just by by being alive. You know, just by moving yeah, around. You if you if you walk, you, you could be killing correct. insects by walking. Correct. That's why it's all about minimizing rather than completely eliminating, because you can't possibly eliminate everything. But anything that you have a choice that you can choose one aspect to the other, and one of the choices is uh, involves less animal suffering than the other. That's what we choose as vegans. Okay. So, so and have you always been? Like, have you always been a vegan, Jordi? No, no. As, as most vegans will tell you, most of us were meat eaters when we were born and grow up. And at one point, we learned about what the effect of our behavior in other animals. We uh, discussed things. We saw documentaries, and we became vegan. I've been vegan for 18 years. Actually, yesterday was my 18 years vegan. I've been years. Okay. And what's your favorite vegan food? Uh, this is a question I often ask. I don't have really one, but I do like a lot of vegetables, but perhaps hummus. Hummus is one of the uh, foods that I yeah. compare, uh, compare with. I think everybody loves hummus. I mean, I yeah, think, I think you don't have an argument I, with anyone I, there. Correct. That's why I normally say it because everybody knows then right. what I'm talking about. And do you have children? Are they vegans? I don't. I don't. No. If I, if I did ever get a, a, a married and have children, I would... Uh, only married a vegan, and, and I will only uh, raise my children as vegans. And of course, when they will become adults, like anybody else, they will have their choices to make. But uh, I would do my best to be sure that their life uh, contributes as little as possible to the destruction of the environment, to the suffering of animals, and to uh, all the problems of uh, eating meat that causes and, and animal products. Because it's, it's for their own benefit. And for the benefit of everybody else that they will have to share the planet with. Okay. Well, listen. Uh, well done, Jordy. When is the next phase of the case? Uh, when do we that next? Will be the, the end of February. End of February. Okay. Well, good luck finding a job. Uh, if we get anybody offering you one, we'll pass it on to you, Jordi Casavicana, uh, the ethical vegan who's just won uh, the right to have veganism uh, recognised as a philosophical belief and therefore protected by law. Uh, it's going to be quite complicated, this one, but we will bring you more uh, as we find out about it, obviously, over the course uh, of the next few weeks. But uh, he can't get a job, Geordie, so if you want to offer him one, maybe you could go to Downing Street. Maybe you could offer his uh, services to Dominic Cummings. We, we can uh, pass that on to him. Uh, we'll see how he goes. Maybe he doesn't want to work for Downing Street, though. Maybe it's not ethical enough for him. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.